Hello and welcome to the Martin Driving Podcast 159. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a couple of unusual things. First one is a flashback to my childhood through a very distorted mirror with the Banana Splits movie from 2019. Then we go back to 2019 for a Chinese action thriller with a lot of magic and supernatural aspects and that is Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings. So sit back and we're going to tra-la-la as long with a whole bunch of incredibly wonderful wuxia action. But let me get the contact details out of the way first and we can get the show running. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, no, you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how is everybody? Um, We're doing kind of okay here. The weather's warming up, though it's still a bit cloudy, but we're definitely heading into the uh, lovelier time of the year. My jasmine jungle in the backyard is blooming and giving us lots and lots of perfume at night time, and the days are getting longer, so it's all... There's not really a downside there at all, apart from, you know, fucked up federal government, global warming, Donald Trump, Xi Jinping, and Martin Scorsese dissing superhero movies. And on the very remote chance that Martin Scorsese is listening to this podcast, I love a lot of things that you do, Marty. You're doing really great with them. You've educated people about movies. You're fantastic with a lot of things. But you made a movie about Jesus Christ and I'm an atheist and that's just not my thing and I don't think that should be made into a movie because we all know how that story ends but you did it anyway and I'm going to kind of go be okay with that because of the other stuff that you've done so back off just a little bit on the superhero movies we haven't been able to do them well until very recently and if we go a little bit mad now that we've got the capability to do it so be it there's a lot of other stuff for you to watch I know you've got a shit ton of movies in your collection And if it's not for you, it's not for you. But it is cinema. It's just a different kind of cinema than the cinema that you appreciate. And I respect that. I respect everything you've done. But on this one, you're kind of going for the headline a bit there, mate. I've been watching a few things, which is kind of interesting. I did watch, finally, after it triggered me really badly for 40-odd years, I finally successfully watched Dario Argento Suspiria. And I did a YouTube video about it. Um, yeah, it was a kind of a weird journey to get to that point because, uh, long story short, well, I saw it when I was about 20 and I was going through an intense nervous breakdown. Not the kind of film you want to see in that sort of circumstance, particularly because in 1977, it was perceived as a much more intense film than it is now. We're a little bit desensitized. So I couldn't watch it. I walked out. I was totally kind of racked seeing it the first time then i tried again several times since and each time i found myself getting very agitated and i couldn't watch it then about a week ago i watched it successfully on blu-ray and i liked it uh it's really weird i kind of dealt with the 
underlying angst and um yeah successfully watched it i'm kind of proud of myself too because it always stuck it was like a stone in my shoe in my movie viewing to not be able to watch Suspiria. and i managed it so good on me i may well do it for a future podcast as well not quite yet but um i definitely want to have a bit of a chat about comparing the two different versions because there was i think a 2018 remake of it which I haven't seen yet, and I want to kind of come to that a little bit fresh after I've digested the original version. I did watch a couple of kind of low, lowish budget science fiction movies on Netflix. I'll name check them, but I won't talk much about them. One's called The Beyond, and the other's called In the Shadow of the Moon. In the Shadow of the Moon, I kind of liked because I think that it's um, okay, but it kind of needed another run through on the script, I think. And I think that it was ambitious for the budget and for the cast that it had. But uh, I won't talk much about those because the, for some reason they didn't stick in my memory the way that several other movies that I watched at the time were. Maybe I was tired when I saw them. That's always a possibility. But I did also watch, surprisingly, an old movie, a movie called Female on the Beach with Joan Crawford and Jeff Chandler because it was recommended by a YouTube channel that I like called Tired Old Queen at the movies. Steve Hayes does it. And it's kind of a 1950s melodrama about a slightly older woman who's divorced and buys a beach house where another woman has fallen to her death off the balcony onto some rocks below. She meets a young, younger gigolo-type character played by Jeff Chandler who is being kind of stabled. His pimps are an older couple living in the beach house next door, one of whom is played by Natalie Schaefer, who played Mrs. Howell in Gilligan's Island. So there's the kind of romance, there's the mystery, there's the murder aspect of it as well. And it kind of works. It's low budget, but it kind of it's a cross between a woman's film and a murder thriller as well. And it kind of works. Uh, Joan Crawford at that stage was looking good for her age. Total shit to her kids, we all know but looking good for her age. And it kind of, yeah, it kind of works in a melodramatic 1950s way. Jeff Chandler always liked as an actor. It also has Jan Sterling in it, who was also in Ace in the Hole. So, yeah, Female on the Beach, which is not to be mistaken for Woman on the Beach, is kind of worth checking out if you're into that kind of 1950s melodrama. It's not the best film in the world, but it's kind of cool. And the reason Jeff Chandler is in the movie, and I kind of like this, is that um, Joan Crawford was dating the head of, I think, Columbia Pictures at the time. And she got choice of actor, and she said, I want Jeff Chandler. So she got Jeff Chandler. Uh, but, yeah, that one's worth checking out if you can find a copy of it. And if you probably won't need to look too hard by subterranean means to find it. Um, I rewatched. Captain Marvel because I wanted to kind of go through that again to see if it was as much fun as I thought it was and yeah the um the non-heterosexual subtext let's say of that movie gets clearer every time I watch it I don't mean that in a critical way at all because I think that um embracing diversity will never make us weaker as people or as a society so the more we do that the better and the more people feel included and accepted and loved in society in spite of diverse opinions the better we're going to be singularly and as a kind of larger society as well so yeah no that was kind of fun to rewatch. 
And I am really looking forward to the future slate of movies that uh, Marvel's going to put out. And, of course, I'm also looking forward to whatever else Scorsese does after The Irishman. So there you go. Um, so that's about it for what I've been watching. What I'll do now is I will play you the trailer for the Banana Splits movie. Then I'll explain why it doesn't ruin your childhood. Going to the banana splits. Sometimes at night, I see the splits riding around in the little cars, laughing and singing. Who's excited to see the banana splits? Yeah! Rebecca, I'm canceling the show. What? Hi, kids. Put on your ha- happiest faces. Because the Banana Split Show is about to begin. Where are the children? Mom, get out of here. Time's almost up. up Why are you doing this to me? Dad, please! Let me out! Now the show can go on forever and ever and ever. Come on, you fuzzy son of a... I just really want your brother's birthday to be perfect. We're going to have so much fun. There are always going to be those people that say, listen, that's ruined my childhood and kind of bleat about it and whinge and tear their hair and fulminate and do all those other things that people do when they're outraged by something of minor importance. But, uh, I mean, I was a Banana Splits fan from... The 1960s, it went from 1968 to 1970. It ran two seasons over that kind of slightly more than two-year period. It was a lot of fun for kids. You got Flegel, Bingo, Drooper and Snorky in the banana buggy going around Knott's Berry Farm on the rides and singing pop songs. Uh, one of the writers for the pop songs for the early Banana Splits, by the way, was Barry White, the um, soul-slash-disco singer guy. Uh, but uh, yeah, they were, they were quite fun. The songs were cool. The um, Bananas Puts themselves did all the slapstick stuff. Then they throw in a couple of cartoons, Arabian Nights, and um, let's see what else was there. The Three Musketeers. And then they'd have a live action little short thing, which was episodic called Adventure Island, which among other people had Jan Michael Vincent on it. It was about a whole bunch of people. Um, kind of white people mostly with a token black guy called Link who go to this weird island and kind of find people doing nefarious things and get in trouble with local tribes and all sorts of other stuff. It was very much an old school kind of thing and um, but for the time it was a lot of fun to do. So flash forward to 2019 and everything's postmodern. And the people who made the Banana Splits movie obviously got the rights to it from Hanna-Barbera, who owned the original rights, and possibly did it because they couldn't get the rights to another intellectual property, which would have got them a much more successful movie. That IP, of course, being Five Nights at Freddy's, the computer game and the toys that kids love. Uh, My nephew, Billy, loves Five Nights at Freddy's. He's got so much from Five Nights at Freddy's merch t-shirts hats toys the whole lot he's just mad about it because it's one of those franchises um particularly in the game that's a safe scare there's a lot of jump scares in the game and it's um 
really kind of got a creepy mood, but there's no blood and guts in it. And so kids love it. And eventually, of course, there may well be a Five Nights at Freddy's movie or a TV series or something along those lines that comes out to fill the need that a lot of kids have for that particular IP. So the makers of Banana Splits movies couldn't get Five Nights at Freddy's, and the Banana Splits were the next best thing. And they turned that innocent, fun-loving 1960s intellectual property into a comedy horror film with a lot of really intense gore in it. Now, there's a bit of a balancing act they've got to do with this. And I think they do it pretty okay. As the trailer indicates, a bunch of kids go to see a taping of the last episode ever of the Banana Splits TV show. In the world of the movie, the Banana Splits has been on TV since the 1960s. And one little kid is a big fan of it. So along with a female friend of his, they get the parents to take them along to see this taping of the Banana Splits TV show which is right at the back of a large movie studio. Studio One is the oldest studio building on the lot, and it's right down the back, and the banana it's kind of looking a bit worn. The sign for the banana splits on the wall is faded, and as we get into the people going in to sit in the bleachers and watch the making of the episode we find out behind the scenes that the management's changed and they want to get rid of the banana splits and we also find out that the banana splits themselves Fleagle, Bingo, Drip and Snorky are all played by animatronic robots that a weird old guy created and he lives pretty much in the back of the studio so an upgrade is needed to Fleagle I think it is and that upgrade turns the whole bunch of the banana splits when they find out that the series is ending into killer robots so after that shit gets really real uh there's a diverse group in there there's the um father and mother of harley the little kid who loves the banana splits there's a um vlogger and his girlfriend who are kind of annoying but uh not really bad people there's a stage daughter, you know, there's a stage father instead of a stage mother who wants his daughter to get onto TV and so keeps trying to find a producer for the show so he can get his daughter onto the screen and a bunch of other people as well. And one by one, of course, they are killed in lots of imaginative ways, which are, in, for the most part, kind of amusing. There's also an extra um, cast member in the Banana Splits show, a human being called Stevie, who's a kind of bitter and self-loathing, alcoholic human being. And Stevie comes to a very nasty end, and here's where the spoilers start a little bit, by having a very large lollipop jammed down his throat by a killer banana split. This is not a movie to show to kids, really, because the gore effects are pretty graphic but humorous somebody gets sawn in half by one of those um with one of those magic sawn in half devices and definitely gets sawn in half because when they separate the two halves of the cabinet all his entrails pour out in a very graphic way so it's um yeah it's, it's definitely not kid friendly this movie but for me it kind of works I think that there's a, a place for a kind of full-on gore-fest kind of film. It does set up for a sequel too, which is kind of interesting. Um, the, 
from what I can find out about the box office, mostly it went to streaming and uh, disc very, very quickly if it got any kind of theatrical release. But I, I wouldn't mind seeing a sequel. I think that uh, it's a franchise that might be a little bit of fun if they can get the right people on board. And there's some really kind of nice scripting bits too where the stepfather of Harley turns out to be a total shit and the mother ends up going Ellen Ripley and taking down these killer robots by herself. Uh, she's played by an actress called Danny Kine, who does a really nice job of it too. She has a nice story arc and she's got a backstory, as indeed does Harley, and so we, we get a little bit of fleshing out of the character there. I think that's really down to the fact that the movie was directed by a woman, which is never a bad thing for this kind of stuff, getting that different viewpoint. Um, a, let me just kind of get my details up. A woman called uh, Danishka Esterhazy. And one of the, and the two, even though the two writers, Jed Ilanoff and Scott Thomas, were guys, um, I've seen the extras on the disc for the Banana Splits movie. And Esterhazy really does have a kind of good grand guignol sort of sense of humour about the the project. She's Canadian. Uh, she's done a few different things, including some TV work. And there's, um, you know, fairly good from 2002 on, but she's directed and a whole number of different things, mostly TV series and short films and movies. And she does a nice job on this one. She builds the tension nicely. The... Um, Studio sets are really well done, and of course, there's an evil basement below the studio sets, which really um, take us to a new level when it comes to the horror of what's actually happening with these killer robot banana splits. So, yeah, it's the movie is slightly better than I expected it to be. When I bought the discs, I went, "Why are you buying that for?" And I kind of went, "Oh, we're going to watch it," so we watched it. And she didn't complain about watching it at all. She knew the Banana Splits vaguely and seen a few episodes, but wasn't as invested in the series as I was. But for me, it did work. I mean, it's full-on horror. It's full-on comedy. I think that if they had a larger budget, it would have helped and they would have been able to do more. But I think the people involved from the special effects work to the people in the costumes for the Banana Splits, and what they did was they got dancers because dancers know how to move in various ways. So all of the um, physical actors for the banana splits were dancers. And oddly enough, and this doesn't show very much at all, except for one of the accents for one of the characters. It was filmed entirely in South Africa, which is a kind of unusual place to make this sort of movie, but obviously there were economies to be made by doing that. And it kind of works for me. It's got a really nice um, ethnically diverse cast too. They they do that really nicely. Uh, South Africa is not the place it was 20, 30 years ago. Costumes for the banana splits are kind of cool too. They stay very strictly to the old look of the banana splits, but there's just something slightly creepy about them. I can't really put my finger on the way they achieve that effect. But for me, it kind of works, and they're much larger than the ones were in the TV series as well, which makes them slightly more menacing, just making them that little bit taller, maybe a foot taller than the ones in the original TV series kind of works there as well. And the banana buggy becomes something really malevolent as well. 
Uh, there's some really nice splatter effects in this movie. I've got to give them all credit to that. Some of them are computer generated, some of them are physical effects, and good on them for doing a lot of physical effects as well. I'm a big fan of that because it gives a lot of people I know jobs to do physical uh, special effects. And I think this is the sort of movie probably wouldn't have been made 10 years ago. With the way streaming is going and where there's a, a bit of money around to make something that's not going to make mega bucks and may not even make a profit at all, I think there's still room for this kind of smallish, lowish budget horror film with with comedy aspect as well. It's a little it reminds me a little bit of some of the stuff Charles Band did about 20 years ago. Uh, things like Doll Man with Tim Thomas and of course. Um, trances and all those kind of things it's got a little bit of that kind of feel about it where you, you know the special effects are a bit ropey you know some of the acting is maybe not great but people commit to what they're doing and the banana splits movie definitely does that it does have that full-on commitment to the premise it treats uh, the intellectual property with respect it doesn't kind of act flippantly about it they go okay we've got the banana splits we're gonna make you a horror movie they're going to be killer robots. We're committed to that. Let's run with it. And they do it very, very well. And in some ways, this kind of movie has something we really like in that nasty people get their comeuppance. Now, in real life, very, very often, nasty, mean-spirited, you know, bad people don't get their comeuppance. They seem to thrive in some occasions. Um, and if they don't thrive, they find some way to wriggle out of their responsibilities. But in a horror movie like this, the moral arc is that if you're an asshole, you will die. If you're kind of insensitive and nasty, if you're looking out for yourself, if you're trying to push your own agenda regardless of how other people feel, then eventually you're going to get put through the mincer. In the moral universe of a comedy horror film, if you're a good person, you'll survive. You may be traumatised to fuck, but you'll survive. And if you're a bad person, then don't book a restaurant for dinner, basically, <laughs> because you're not going to make that appointment. Um, yeah, I kind of think that we should get more of this kind of stuff. Though. I think that horror movies have got a little bit serious lately. They, For the most part, there's some very grim and nasty and of course that's part of the zeitgeist we live in pessimistic times everybody thinks that the world's going to end and that human life is going to be destroyed i'm a little more optimistic than that and so the horror movies that we are given reflect that narrative reflect that kind of pessimism and that dread and that negativity whereas this movie plays against that zeitgeist tells us that mass murder by robots can be fun and in certain circumstances i suppose it can i don't expect anybody to be silly enough like me to buy the uh, blu-ray of this one but when it comes up on a streaming service you might want to check it out if you're that way inclined if you're into a bit of comedy horror it's not going to be on anybody's list of the best of the year but it's nice and, and a bit of fun and i think that if it gets people watching the old banana splits tv series again then that, if nothing else, is a very positive thing. So anyway, I'm going to take a break. Now, when I get back, I'm going to talk about the second movie for the podcast, which is the Chinese film Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings.
每个人心中都有一只恶鬼，恶鬼缠身，身不由己啊！恭喜幻天真人，任我大唐国师。那就请真人演练大法，让朕开开眼。遵旨。柱上的金龙活化，然后穿顶而来。青龙一位大齐之兆，你将成为新的九五之尊。说的真好啊！这幕后主使和天后有寡人宣布接管大理寺。天王已毁，此案难破。天下之难，凭你们来的。Probably should start out by saying that if you enjoyed Big Trouble in Little China and movies like that, you're going to enjoy、um, Detective D: The Four Heavenly Kings. It's a 2018 Chinese action adventure fantasy mystery film. It was directed and produced by Hark Sui,、uh, who has been doing this shit for a long time, for maybe 30 years since Zoo Warriors: The Magic Mountain, maybe before that. It's the third in. A series. Now I didn't know this when I saw it. It came up on SBS on demand. I took a look at it and went, "Wow, I'm going to watch this." And then I found out there's two previous movies. It doesn't matter that you haven't seen the two previous movies. There may be a couple of subtle things you miss, but for the most part, you're going to be doing okay. Now the protagonist in this one, Detective D, is actually based on a real person, a guy called D. Renji, who lived, he said, scrolling up Wikipedia. Um, between 630 Christian era and 700 Christian era, so he lived for 70 years. He was a bureaucrat and a very wise man by all accounts, and an official in the Tang and Zhu dynasties. We served as a chancellor during the reign of Wu Zetian, who was in a who is a character in the movie, and was an empress of China who is widely regarded. In peop among people who know Chinese history a little better than I do, and in case you're making notes, I should tell you what the previous two movies were, and I'll just find this link because I've got a nice one here with all of the details. The second one, I'll go in reverse order. Second one is Young Detective D: Rise of the Sea Dragon, which was in from 2013, and the first one from 2010. Is an older、um, Detective D. So the the second and third movies are young Detective D. The older, what the first one is an older version of the character, Detective D, and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame from twenty、uh, ten. In that one movie,、um, Andy Lau played the character, and in the two sequels where they're backfilling the life of、um, Detective D, the character is played by a younger actor, Mark Chow. Uh, he has some friends hanging out too. He has a doctor called、um, Yuji Zenjin.、Uh, the Empress Wu Zetian is played by a veteran Hong Kong character actor, Karina Lau.、Uh, Karina Lau's interesting character. In the 1990s, she was kidnapped for a little while by、um, some Chinese tongs, 
and held just for a little bit. And uh, she, yeah, she was rescued and no, released. Sorry, and the people went to jail for that. But it was quite a scandal at the time. We also get uh, Sandra Ma playing a character called Moonwater, who's a female assassin who kicks ass totally. This is a crazy over-the-top balls-to-the-wall action film in every way. Now, Detective D is appointed the head of the Department of Justice, and he's given a magical weapon called the Dragon Taming Mace by the Emperor. And he then becomes the biggest obstacle to Empress Wu Zetian's eventual rise to ultimate authority. Now, I'm reading a part of this from... Wikipedia. She assigns uh, Zuchi Zenyin to lead a group of sorcery masters to take the mace from the detective. Unknowing to all, using the Wu Di conflict as a cover, an ancient sorceress sect has been in the background planning to exact revenge on the Tang Empire and destroy all who come in their way. Now, that ancient sect has some really powerful hypnotic magic where they can throw illusions at people and people will believe them. And using a combination of illusions and kind of small explosions and things like that, they can convince people that what they see is real. This movie has basically the same plot as Spider-Man Far From Home. Just imagine that this sorceress cult which started in India and is quite nasty, but there are historical reasons why they're nasty, is basically Mysterio from... um, Spider-Man Far From Home. Now, this one came out before Spider-Man Far From Home, so I don't know whether they borrowed it or uh, Marvel borrowed anything from it. But, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, the two parallels there. In totally different contexts, one's a superhero movie set in the second decade of the 21st century, the other one's set in about 680 AD. Um, And, yeah, it kind of works. The thing to really admire in this film is even though some of the special effects aren't perfect from a modern standpoint in the sense that they're not as adept as a lot of the effects in Marvel movies, one of the things that Harksui does is he uses them really quickly. You see um, kind of acrobatic assassins turning into flying bat creatures, but it's done really fast so they don't have to worry about whether the render is going to stand up against prolonged scrutiny or not. It's in there fast, bam, you believe it while you watch it, and then suddenly they're onto another scene with 55 guys jumping across rooftops, um, shooting arrows at each other and um, throwing ropes and all sorts of weird shit. It's a beautifully evoked Chinese lung dragon which attacks the emperor and the empress in their palace, which is one of the great set-piece scenes in this. Um, this movie kind of works on so many levels of fun. It says, yeah, Marvel movies have got certain things that they do, but what we're going to do is we're going to throw everything against the wall and a lot of it's going to stick. And it very much does with this film. It really is um, impressive. And because it comes from a different cultural viewpoint than our own, it's much more kind of interesting. You can kind of... I'll get, I'll get more intensely interested in it because I'm trying to understand the cultural context and trying to pick up the bits that I can of Chinese history, of which I know incredibly little, and to kind of make it work for me and to get me to understand just that little bit better what exactly is happening during this movie. 
apart from the actual stuff. The actual stuff speaks for itself, but the political machinations behind the scenes, the um, Taoist belief systems, all of the things underlying the good creatures you see, and the magic and the um, sorcerers. There are so many sorcerers in this movie. It's crazy. And it just kind of bombards you with imagery and fun. There's a hell of a lot of fantastic wire work here. I'm surprised a lot of people weren't garroted with the wires because of the amount of them they would have had to use for any particular scene. And it's all meticulously done. The crowd scenes and the um, fight scenes with a lot of actors in them are incredibly well done. But, of course, Harksby has been doing this for a very long time. He knows how to do this since, as I said, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain where he had to do something. They were doing a blood monster. And to make the blood monster in Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain work, what they did was they had a whole bunch of red silk draped it over some rocks and then just pulled it with strings and then put it in reverse so it looked like the monster was flowing the other way over the rocks. Now they can do it all with um, computer effects and he's embraced that to a degree which is kind of awesome and amazing. And in spite of all of the action stuff, well, not in spite of, but to contrast all of the action stuff, the relationships between the characters are really well done. The friendships between the men, the fact that um, Detective D has a heart condition which is brought on by worry and stress and his doctor friend treats it with a combination of acupuncture and potions and that that's used against him as well when the various warring factions, the Empress and, of course, the evil sect are want to get hold of the um, dragon taming mace which is kind of cool it has some interesting abilities which are a little bit lateral but really work in the context of it. Uh, also one of the things that happens is that Detective D sends some people off to get the the apprentice of the guy who trained Detective D in the mystic arts in a sense the guy who inherited the kind of the sorcerer supreme of the universe that this movie is set in. And the great thing is that when the sorcerer comes to help them eventually, he's riding a giant white ape. There's this enormous, like, 10-metre-tall giant white ape as a part of the battles in this. So not only do you have a whole bunch of ninjas who can look like bat creatures... And you have the heroes and that. You have an enormous kind of white ape with a little Taoist monk sitting on his back. And you get the um, the hypnotic um, spells showing giant monsters from um, Chinese mythology attacking the Empress Palace. Uh, it's just so full on and so balls to the wall fun that you kind of got to ask yourself, is this as good as a bunch of Marvel movies as far as the action scenes are concerned or not? And it is. It's got characters who care about each other. There is that kind of underlying personal interaction in it. It's got a historical aspect to it for the Chinese people. And it's also very much an action film. Uh, it, It kind of... I want to see more of this kind of cinema to go. So I've actually found a copies of the first two Detective D movies. And I am going to 
watched the hell out of them. Now, I expected special effects in the third one to be more elaborate than in the second and the first, but that doesn't really matter to me. I'm going to go in and dive deeply into this. And I know on the podcast, I have been talking a lot about Chinese cinema, but there is some incredibly interesting stuff coming out of that part of the world. And we should not only acknowledge it, but kind of tell each other when there is the good stuff. Uh, I've talked about The Wandering Earth. I also talked about Shanghai Fortress, which was less wonderful. We really have to acknowledge that Hong Kong slash Chinese cinema has been giving us wonderful action movies since at least the 1960s. There have been things that they've done in the early Wuxia movies. All of the stuff that the Shaw brothers did, uh, you know, Five Deadly Venoms and all sorts of movies like that. This stuff has been going on to the limits of budget and technology for a very long time now. It's What's that? Going on for 60 years, there's been these movies coming out of that part of the world. And they've been punching well above their weight as far as entertainment value, at the very least, is concerned. And the cool thing they've been doing, which is something that I always appreciate, they have been doing since day one, is mining their own country's history and their own culture's belief systems for the source material for these fantastical fantasy films. And not kind of just grabbing whatever they can from every country in the world, the way that... Um, anglophone fantasy movies tend to do and appropriating it for monetary gain in four heavenly kings you get a kind of psychological not psychological but you get a philosophical underpinning and a moral universe as well which is kind of unusual there's a kind of um, life lesson wrapped up in this movie and about you know, talking to people about the way they should be and the way they should handle situations. And it doesn't come across as pre- preachy either. It just comes across as this is a pearl of wisdom, do with it as you will. There's also a bit of kind of subterranean criticism, possibly of the Chinese government, in that um, authoritarianism and cults of personality are questioned in this movie in some interesting ways. And the ethnic diversity of the Chinese empire as it was at that time is something that the movie celebrates, but it's something which in so many different ways the Chinese government in our own time is ruthlessly suppressing. So there's a little subtext there as well, which wouldn't be lost, of course, on the audiences. And um, Harksui obviously doesn't care if he is kind of criticising the government through this weird lens of a wildly engaging and exciting action film. There also been some criticisms that there's less investigation and more action in this film than in the previous two episodes of the series. Now, I haven't seen the first two, so I can't really talk to that, but uh, I've looked at a lot of reviews and a lot of people mentioning the film online, and there, that is something that people kind of miss because Detective D's ability to detect it's in the name of course is something that they really like about it and there were some books too by an anglophone i think author robert van gulick which were about detective d back in the day just give me a few moments i'm going to find the reference to that because i seem to recall seeing some of those books in secondhand bookshops back in the day let's have a look by the way if you want to read the wikipedia page about d Rengie, Interesting character in so many ways. Let me have a look here. A guy called Robert Van Gulick translated a Chinese novel 
um, Di Gong An, which was written very early on. He wrote sequels to those stories. Let me just have a look here. He was born a son of a Dutch army officer in the Dutch East Indies, so he was born in the Netherlands. But ages 3 to 12, he lived in Batavia, which is now Jakarta, where he was tutored in Mandarin and other languages. So he's very much a kind of Sinophile. So during World War II, he translated the 18th century novel Di Gong An uh, under the English title Celebrated Cases of Judge D. And he wrote some other books as well, The Chinese Maze Murders, The Chinese Bell Murders, and The Chinese Lake Murders. And he also wrote a bunch of other stuff. He died in 1967, which is fairly early because he was only 57 at the time. But anyway, I'm drifting off course here. Just to get back to things, I'm going to watch the other two at some stage. I'm not sure when because I've got a lot on my plate at the moment. Um, I've got about, let me see, 36 hours to think up, write, film, edit and release a YouTube video. I've got a pretty good idea about what I'm going to do it about. I'm going to actually do, and you might want to look at this. My 10 recommendations for Halloween movies. That's the one I'm going to put out this week. And I'm kind of going old and new and, and combining different genres, which are very Halloween-y, and doing that kind of thing. And I think I will add Judge D in there just for the bit of excitement. I might, I might not. We'll just wait and see. But just to wrap this one up, and it's going to be a short podcast this time. I apologize for that, but I'm kind of in the middle of doing some stuff and uh, there's some health issues in the family. But if you're in Australia, um, check it out on SBS On Demand. It's free, the free streaming service that our government pays for. They do chuck ads into it on the special broadcasting service. But it's worth checking out. Uh, There's just so much good movies and series on SBS On Demand. We're quite fortunate to have a free multicultural movie and program um, channel which streams movies we might not, might not otherwise see because SBS also does its own subtitles and they kind of sell through and and kind of hire out the subtitling service to make some money on the side to keep the uh, second government broadcaster going but yeah just troll through um, SBS On Demand or even if you've got a VPN you can do it as well you can find it fairly easily and there's just such a, a wealth of interesting movies and TV series and documentaries and other things on SBS On Demand I can't recommend it highly enough but anyway I'm going to wrap it up this time um, we've got to thank the Patreon supporters of course for supporting the podcast and by extension the YouTube channel You really should get on board with that because I'm going to do some exclusive content for the Patreon supporters later in this year, heading towards the ho-ho-ho season. And uh, you're going to miss out otherwise. But I will keep the podcast going. So in a sense, you just don't get the extras. You get um, the regular podcasts and the YouTube. But anyway, I've got to thank, of course, Rich Chamberlain, who's one of the Patreon supporters. Um, I think I may give him um, credit on the um end credits to the podcast as you know rich chamberlain as morgul the friendly drelb or something like that but anyway um everybody else is mentioned in the credits here at the end and then i'm going to play some funky music as i always do as a post-credit sequence to the podcast but anyway um paleo cinema is going to come out soon i'm actually doing a woman's film from the 1950s which is kind of interesting called female on the beach and i'm going to find something else to do as well 
But really, check out these two movies. Um, the Banana Splits movie, yeah, no, it's okay, but um, Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings, is a kick-ass action film and is one that's well worth checking out. Another one I've heard about, which I really should check out as well, by the way, is Stephen Chow's The Mermaid. People have told me about that one, but I haven't really had a chance to have a go at it. Kind of comedy action fantasy film set in modern times about a guy who finds a mermaid. So I may well check out that for a future podcast as well. But anyway, in the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch all sorts of movies and just share the love of them between yourselves and with me, of course. In the meantime, by the way, the other thing too, I've got to mention this before we go. I'm doing a question and answer for the YouTube channel where people can ask me any question about movies and about my opinion on movies. So send me a Facebook message or send me just something telling me what your question is. I'm going to put this forward a couple of weeks until I get a few more questions. Then it's all going to be up on YouTube with me answering the questions to camera. Anyway, so that's going to be happening and I need questions for that. So any questions you've got, already got a few good ones, but I want to kind of fill out the time with a few more questions. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch all sorts of movies and keep watching the skies. And I'll be back soon. So here are the credits. Minus Rich Chamberlain, of course. So thank you, Rich. And then I'm going to play you something really weird and wild and interesting. But uh, anyway, take care of yourselves. I'll be back soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast. Done in a style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, Mark D., our extra, and David L., our extra, Kerry H., who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. All around me like a rubber band It ain't the me, it's the motion Makes your daddy wanna rock 
it ain't the meat, it's the motion. It's the movement that gives it the sound. Some fellows don't like to see them like that But I like to see them big and tall The bigger they come, the harder they fall It ain't the meat, it's the motion Makes your daddy wanna rock It ain't the meat, it's the motion It's the movement that gives it the sock That makes your daddy wanna rock all night I got a little girl who lives down the street It ain't much of her but she's mighty sweet When she starts rocking she don't wanna stop It makes a man wanna blow his top It ain't the meat, it's the motion Makes your daddy wanna rock It ain't the meat, it's the motion It's the movement that gives in the sun. 